Let's pray again together. Father, we ask now that you would give us ears to hear your word, hearts to receive your love, and minds to receive your wisdom, so that we could leave this place with feet more willing to walk in your ways. In Jesus' name, amen. It's a great thing in life if we're trying to learn how to do something, to be taught by a master. Maybe you've had that experience of being taught by somebody who really knows their craft inside out. Whether it's getting a few golf lessons from a pro or learning how to cook something from a top chef. In life, we often look to the experts, don't we? And in the 1980s, um, Eric Bristow was undoubtedly the master of darts. He won five world titles. And it's not that he was always better at darts than his opponent, but he knew how to win. He was known as the crafty cockney, and he was crafty. He knew how to get into his opponent's head. He knew how to get up into their face. He knew when to do that. He knew when to tap his darts behind them just to put them off. He knew when to slow down a bit to knock them out of their rhythm. He knew all the tricks of the trade, and he knew how to win. And in 1986, he saw somebody play darts in his pub near Stoke-on-Trent, and the man worked in pottery. He was just an amateur thrower. He made handles for toilets. But Bristow saw that he could play, and he said to him, if you give up your job, I'll sponsor you, and I'll be your mentor. And the guy decided he didn't want to spend his life making toilet handles, so he said, yes, I'm going to have a go. This is an opportunity to be taught by the master. He had good skills, but somebody needed to teach him how to win. And that man was Phil Taylor, who went on to win 16 world titles of his own. And he always credits his own amazing career to the fact that he was taught in the first place by the master. It's a valuable thing uh, to be taught by an expert. Uh, In fact, it's something people pay a lot of money for. Uh, I remember my piano teacher telling me that he spent a lot of money uh, back in the 1960s just to have one lesson with an elderly German lady. And I thought, why did you do that? But it turned out that she had been a student of Franz Liszt, who was a very gifted pianist and composer. And if it wasn't enough, Franz Liszt was also a student of Beethoven. So anytime anybody critiques how I play the piano, I like to say, I was taught by Beethoven. (laughs) It's a bit of a stretch, I'll give that to you, but still. But in 1 Thessalonians 2, that we're looking at today, we get a bit of a glimpse of how Paul went about his work of sharing the gospel. Now, I'm sure if Paul were here today, he'd be the first to say, look, I'm not the master. He called himself the chief of sinners. He called himself a wretch of a man. But there's no question about it. He's one of the most prolific church planters who ever lived. And when it comes to learning about sharing the gospel, looking in the direction of Paul is gonna be pretty sound advice. Last week, we we looked in Acts 17 and the story of how it had been planted. Just on three Sabbath days, Paul preached in the synagogue and he had to run away under cover of darkness. He left this young church in its infancy. He was worried about it. He gets this great report from Timothy. And so he writes to encourage them and we saw some of those encouragements last week. But then in chapter two, he starts to defend himself. Remember the opponents in Thessalonica, they were trying to say before the officials that Paul and his friends, they're they're bad for society. They're turning the world upside down. They're causing unrest. They're defying Caesar. They're saying there's another king, Jesus. And so it's understandable that Paul wants to defend himself because he's left this church behind and they're facing these kinds of opponents. 
It's not too hard to see from what Paul says as you read through this, that they're accusing him of all sorts of things. Paul, he was only here for your money. Look what a failure he is. He was a failure in Philippi, and now he's been a failure here, and he's had to run away. But he defends himself, and as he does that, we get an amazing look at how Paul sees the work that he did there, how he shared the gospel. And so if we are going to be followers of Jesus who want to share the gospel with others, then we have much to learn from this part of God's word this morning. We can learn from the master, Jesus, I mean, We learn from the master and we see how he used his servant Paul in sharing the gospel. And so firstly, Paul says that he shared the gospel with genuine motives in the face of opposition. Look with me again, if you have your Bible open at the first six verses. Uh, Remember, these people are bad-mouthing Paul and he says this, You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not a failure. We had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dare to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. For the appeal we make doesn't spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please men, but God who tests our hearts. You know we never use flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from men not from you or from anyone else. Even though he was facing a lot of opposition, Paul is adamant that his motives were pure. There was no element of greed when he brought the gospel to the Thessalonians. In fact, he says that greed really couldn't have been a motive because in Philippi, preaching the gospel had led him to loads of suffering and being insulted, not money. And so when he came to Thessalonica, he faced more opposition. It wasn't exactly a good money-making operation. In fact, it was the opposite. One of the commentaries I was reading this week, um, when it gets to this part, it it very helpfully looks at what Paul said in all his letters um, about money and the work of the gospel and payment and so on. It gives 10 summary points. We're not going to do those this morning. But the basic summary in two sentences is this. Where there are established churches, Paul says it's fine for gospel workers to receive payment. In fact, he quotes Jesus and he says that the worker is due their wages. But when a church isn't established, when he's preaching the gospel in a place that has never been reached before, he never accepts any money. He takes a gift from established churches. One of the reasons that he wrote to the Philippians, for example, was to thank them for their gift. But when it comes to preaching the gospel, he's not trying to get anything out of people. He's not trying, he's not trying to do anything except to win them for Christ. In fact, in verse 9, Paul explains how he made a living when he was in Thessalonica. He says, surely you remember our toil and our hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel to you. Paul worked. We know he was a tent maker. Um, So that was probably the work he was doing there. And he did that so that he wasn't asking for anything from the Thessalonians. So when we share the gospel, we're called to do it with genuine motives. Now, I have to say this week, I've been very challenged by this um, as somebody who is paid to do gospel work. Most of you know I've completed my training. I'm eligible to be called by a congregation to be their minister. And I'm in the weird position where emails and letters are coming in um, from churches with their congregational profiles and their mission plan. 
And quite often in the profile, you know, they give you a picture of the manse, you know, and they, they say, well, it's really nice. And, we, you know, we've refurbished this in the last five years. And I was looking at one uh, the other day where they'd renovated it extensively. It looked fantastic. And then they tell you what the salary is. And then I think about my great granny, Sarah McCracken. She, she was one of the founding members of Monkstown Baptist Church about 100 years ago, and all of her brothers were Baptist pastors. I remember my granny telling me they had absolutely nothing. They had nothing. They just had what the people could give, and that wasn't much. They lived in cold houses with nothing. They went hungry for the gospel. Now, for most of us this morning, obviously, money isn't going to be a motive in sharing the gospel. Though we do need to be careful, you know, if we just berate people for not coming to church or whatever, there's probably a good chance they'll think that we just want to get the numbers up a bit. And it's not a big stretch from there to think that we might have money as a motive. But usually, for most of us, money won't be a motive. But God's word does challenge us here as to what our motives are. Do we think that if we share the gospel with somebody, it makes us a better Christian? Do we think, Lord, you're gonna be pleased with me today. I, I told somebody about you. Do we do it for ourselves? Do we do it because we think others in the church will look after us or look up to us and be impressed with us? For Paul, his genuine motives weren't just about answering his critics. For him, it's more than that. He knows that God sees his motives. It's scattered throughout the verses. In verse four, he says, we were not trying to please men, but God who tests our hearts. In verse five, he calls God as his witness that flattery and greed weren't his reasons for preaching the gospel. And God sees our hearts too, doesn't he? It's, it's him we're serving, not ourselves. Not to feel better about ourselves, not to get praise from other believers. It's God we're serving. So as we share the gospel, we're called to do it with genuine motives to see sinners saved. And that's it. At the end of chapter one that we read last week, Paul says that Jesus rescues us from the coming wrath. And that's our motivation in love for other people to see them rescued too. Secondly, then Paul shared the gospel in the context of relationships. If you look with me from at the middle of verse six, uh, the second paragraph there, this is what he says. He says, as apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle among you like a mother caring for her little children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. Paul uses this picture of a, a loving, a nursing mother to say, that this wasn't a transactional thing. It wasn't about getting their money. It wasn't that he as the great apostle was up on his high horse telling people that they needed to be saved. No, he, he got down off the high horse, if you like. He shared the gospel, but also his life as well, because these people had become so dear to him. Are you ever in the city center and you maybe see or hear a street preacher passionately sharing the gospel? I think there's a place for that, of course there is, but I do sometimes wonder what the success rate is. I don't know, but I don't imagine it's very high because there's no relationship there. Most people just wish they didn't have to listen to this while they're walking past. But we, so, we see it so clearly in the life of Jesus, don't we? How often he ate with people. He broke bread around their tables. He was at a wedding with his disciples. He went up to all the feasts in Jerusalem with his people. And even when he preached in the open air, so yes, there is a place for that, 
But even in those stories, we see little close-ups, don't we, of his compassion for individuals. Those little stories of it being interrupted, interacting with people. The man lowered in through the ceiling of the house as he was walking in the crowd and teaching the woman who just touched the hem of his coat. And he stopped to speak to her. The time he spent with Mary and Martha, even when there was a big crowd around him. The time he invested with his disciples. The 12, yes, but also the three, Peter, James, and John. He went over to the 10 lepers when nobody else would. He spoke to the woman at the well in the heat of the day. Nobody wanted to speak to her. She had to go and get water in the heat of the day, presumably because the other woman didn't want anything to do with her. The conversation with Nicodemus at night, the list goes on and on and on. Jesus' life and ministry happened in the context of relationships and Paul, in imitating his master, he did the same. I'll try not to break the microphone. Like a mother caring for her little children, sharing not just the gospel, but his life as well. Maybe think of it like this. Can you imagine if you were at work or studying or whatever you do with your time and a complete stranger walked in at your workplace and said to you, hey, I don't know you, but you see this thing you're doing with your life? No, it's all wrong. I think you need to quit and do something else. And then they walk out again. How would you react to that? I mean, it probably depends on your temperament. Some of us, I imagine, might find it funny. We might scoff. We think, who do they think they are coming in here? They don't even know me. They think they know what's best for my life. Away on. Some of us might react angrily. What's his problem? Who does he think he is coming in here? He doesn't know me. He knows nothing about me. He thinks he knows what's best for my life. But if we don't have a relationship with the person we're sharing the gospel with, well then, that's what we're doing. We don't know them. We know nothing about them. And yet we expect them to listen to us when we tell them a pretty major thing in their life. Yet it's all wrong. We think that we know a better way. Sometimes God will work in very powerful ways in those contexts, but without a relationship, it's very difficult. Now, there are exceptions. There are times when someone hears the word preached by someone they don't know and they get saved, and, or maybe they read a tract or something like that. But they usually work best, even those in the context of a relationship. To give you an example, um, the great preacher, Billy Graham, uh, preached all over the world. I believe he preached here um, over half a century ago. And wherever Billy Graham went, people came to faith. You know, he was just one of those exceptional speakers and God used him in mighty, mighty ways. But if you think about the people who went to hear Billy Graham or any other evangelist, normally they'll have gone along with somebody that they know. If you read testimonies of people who came to faith at at Billy Graham's rallies, so often it was because somebody said to them, hey, I'm going to this and I think you would like it. Do you want to come along? Because they're a friend, they say, yeah, sure. They didn't go along because of any interest of their own. They wouldn't have got tickets for themselves, but they think, well, do you know what? They're my friend and I'm sure if I asked them to come along with me to some concert that I like, well, they'd probably come, so yeah, I will. And in the context of that relationship, they meet God. And more and more people aren't going to walk in through our doors if we don't invite them. Some might. Some might see us online and some might be prompted by the Spirit to come to church. It happens. I've seen it happen. But it's usually the exception. Far more often people come along because they're invited. 
And this is exactly why it's quite helpful if the first thing we invite people along to in church is purely social. You'll see us doing that sometimes. We run events which are just social, but we have to be careful. We can't bring people along on false pretenses either. We can't use something that's purely social to lure them in and then bam, when they're in, we hit them with something that they don't expect. Back in verse three, Paul said, we weren't trying to trick you. We do need to be upfront about who we are. It's, it's both, it's not one or the other. And it's not one and then the other. That can sometimes happen, but it's better when it's both together. If it's just gospel and no relationship, well, it's like that guy who came into your work telling you you're doing it all wrong. If it's a just relationship, then, and we're not sharing the gospel, well, then we're not doing what we're called to, that's obvious. If it's a relationship and then the gospel, well, that can work, but we could be accused of trying to trick people. But when we're upfront about who we are and we share our lives as well as the gospel, we'll, we'll face some opposition up front, and that's okay. But when we actually care about people, when we show them that, and we're not just gonna preach at them when they know that, and when they know we're genuine about sharing our lives with them, well then an invitation to hear the gospel might just be received better. So sharing the gospel is to be done with genuine motives and in the context of relationship. And then thirdly, the gospel is shared when it's modeled by Christians. Our own lives need to show that we're serious about what we believe. And in defending himself and in pointing out how he shared the gospel, Paul says that he did that. Again, in verse 10, he says, you're witnesses and so is God of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. Now, if you're anything like me, um, those words probably make you a bit uncomfortable. I'm not sure, in fact, I, I am sure, I wouldn't say to anybody, you're a witness and so is God of how holy, blameless, and righteous I've been as I've lived among you. Definitely not. And yet, it would be my hope and my prayer that when people look at my life that they would see that Jesus makes a difference. I might mess that up a lot of the time, but still my life looks different with Jesus in it, a lot different than it would if he wasn't in it. I can see back in chapter one, the, the evidence of my faith, the work produced by faith, labor prompted by love, endurance inspired by hope. And that means that if people can see that, Jesus makes a difference to us then they can see that we're in Christ. And if we're in Christ, well, then we are holy, righteous, and blameless. That's who we are in Christ. As much as we might make a mess of the thing, those sins and imperfections are forgiven by God. And we live as forgiven people. And we look like forgiven people because the blood of Jesus was shed for us. And so our standing in him is holy, righteous, and blameless. And if people see that that makes a difference, then they can see that we're in Christ. How will people see it? Well, they'll see it as we love them. Again, he uses the picture of a parent, this time a father in verse 11. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. If we love people as a father loves his children, then they will see the difference Jesus makes. Now, I don't know what sort of relationship each of you um, today has or has had with your father. Maybe for some of you that relationship uh, wasn't good. Well, if Paul's metaphor here isn't useful to you, 
can I suggest that instead you look at Jesus? Now, you might think that's a little bit strange, but one of the amazing things about Jesus is that on more than one occasion, he calls his disciples children. Some of our translations change that a little bit um, to dear friends or something like that, but he calls them children. In John 13, when he's about to go away and he's just washed his disciples' feet, he says, little children, yet a little while I am with you. Where I am going, you cannot come. And then after he's risen from the dead in John 21, and the disciples have been fishing all night, Jesus calls to them from the shore, children, do you have any fish? So if the father picture is a a difficult one for you, we'll look to the one who Isaiah said would be wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Because Jesus is one with the Father, well, then the way he deals with us is like the perfect Father. And I think the words that Paul uses reflect that. Verse 11, for you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. That's who Jesus is to us. He's encouraging and comforting and urging us to live lives worthy of God, who calls us into his kingdom and glory. And Jesus has brought that kingdom of glory to us. And so in in sharing the gospel, we, we model the gospel in our lives. We comfort people. We encourage them and we urge them to turn to God, who is calling them into his kingdom, if they will just call on his name. Okay, that all sounds good, but what does that mean practically in everyday life? Well, I think it means that how we live really matters for sharing the gospel. It means we need to be spending time with our master, Jesus, if we're going to model him to other people. I don't think we can tell people that we have good news if we don't look like we have good news in our lives. It's reflected in how we live, the, the language that we use, what we, what we do with our money. So that will cause us to ask difficult questions of ourselves and of each other. What are the areas in my life where it doesn't look like Jesus makes a difference? What are the sorts of things that others see where they wouldn't see Jesus? What do I need to, to change with God's help? What is just one thing, even this week, that people would notice was changed and might show them Christ? The gospel is shared when it's modeled by believers. And then fourthly and finally, sharing the gospel is bigger than just us. And that is a really good thing. Sharing the gospel is bigger than us. Often it involves other churches, other Christians, and it's ultimately God's work, not ours. This is the the final paragraph that we read, and, and we'll just think about it briefly from verse 13. We also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it. Not as the word of men, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. For you, brothers, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, that's the other Christians, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own countrymen the same things those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to all men in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. Paul says that the Thessalonians should be encouraged. In fact, he he thanks God that they're suffering in the same way as other churches. It's not that they're doing it wrong. And so they're suffering in a way that other churches aren't. Actually, they're doing it right. And that's why they're suffering, like the churches in Judea, and like the prophets, and like Jesus himself. Paul 
encourages us to look at the bigger picture. In fact, that last sentence where it says, the wrath of God has come upon them at last, these opponents, that sounds really serious, and it is, but if you think about it, you might think it's strange that Paul says that in the past tense. But the judgment hasn't come yet, so why does he say it as if it's already happened? But what's actually going on there grammatically is that Paul is asking us to take a step back and look at the big picture. It's all Greek to us, literally, but sometimes in Greek you actually use a past tense not to say that something has already happened, but to take a step back and look at the big picture. And so Paul is encouraging these Christians, look, these other Christians, they're suffering just like you, and God's in control of it all. And in fact, God's in control of all history, and people who oppose God's kingdom in the big picture, they face judgment. And you might say that it's so certain that it's as if it's already happened, You can speak of it in the past tense because in the grander scheme of things, it's absolutely certain. And if that's the case, if we are vindicated by God, then we should be even more confident about sharing the gospel. We're gonna face opposition. It's practically guaranteed, but that's okay because it's bigger than us. We're with all other Christians everywhere who've ever tried to share the gospel in that one. And we should be confident because we know the opponents of the gospel will not be vindicated. And that's absolutely and eternally certain. But as we share the good news of Jesus, we give others the opportunity to receive not wrath, but mercy, grace, and peace in the here and now, and then eternally glory. We give God all the glory for that. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, it's our desire as a church family to grow, to share the gospel with more and more people, to see people coming to saving faith in Jesus. And so, Lord, we ask that you would lead us to the people that you're drawing to yourself, that you would help us to live lives that reflect our Savior, and that you would work all things in our lives and in this place for your purposes and your glory. In his name, amen.